0: It's interesting just being up here yet again at this different place. And so the last time that I spoke with you, we started and I gave a message that the Lord had given me about peace and peace that survives storms. And we put that in the context of the issue of anxiety an issue that is so prevalent throughout our world throughout our society in fact there's 40 million adults in the united states right now that deal with anxiety and when you put that in the context that there are only 170 million people who identify as christians we're talking about almost a third of our Christian population that is struggling with anxiety. And so the more that I dealt with this issue and the more that I just kind of prayed over this, I really felt like God was leading me to a place where I couldn't let this issue of anxiety go. And so this will be the second message in a series about being anxious for nothing. And so what we're going to deal with tonight is about choosing to be present over being perfect. If you will, will you pray with me? Father God, in this moment, in this time, in this space, in this place, we ask you to fully reign in our hearts. Sit on the throne of our life, God. Open our ears, open our hearts, open our minds to your word. Tune our frequency to that of heaven. Break through and speak a word through me, God. I surrender all that I am. I surrender all that I have, and I give everything over to you, God. We are thirsty for righteousness. We are hungry for your word and for your truth. Fill us, Holy Spirit. Fill us with you. In Jesus' name, amen. And so I want to look at this particularly destructive, anxiety inducing habit called perfectionism. Let's look at our original verse, Philippians. Chapter 4, verses 6 through 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is one of those verses that we tend to quote all the time, that we hear people discuss, be anxious for nothing, don't be anxious, be anxious for nothing. But the reality is there's a society that we are incredibly anxious. We are constantly dealing with the effects of how anxiety alters our decision-making, how it physically changes the chemistry of our brain. When you talk about children that have experienced trauma early in childhood consistently, their brain chemistry is changed to that of a person. Very often when we look at individuals and adults that have experienced adult onset ADHD, very often that's a product of children that were anxious constantly. Their body was flooded with cortisol and with stress hormones and adrenaline, so much so that their mind has now been changed. This issue of being anxious for nothing, it it weighed on me. And just the strangeness of the fact that Paul, of all people, was the one writing this. Because remember that Paul was the same guy that said he was born out of the tribe of Benjamin, Circumcised on the eighth day, a Pharisee of Pharisees. Do you know how anal retentive a Pharisee had to be? These are the same people that would tithe every single penny that they had, including herbs that they had grown in the garden. Can you imagine trying to tithe 10% of herbs? We don't even measure herbs when we're cooking. To try to tithe 10% of the, and this man, while sitting in a jail cell in Rome, wrote these words, be anxious for nothing. When we look at this request, and we look at it up against this landscape of his life, there has to be some way to actually honor this. Because we treat this as one of those verses in the Bible that we're not really supposed to do. There's some stuff we just kind of skip over, like, okay, that that sounds nice, but, you know, and we're not going to do it. But there is a way. And some of it we have to begin to look at is breaking down the system of our habits that contributes to our anxiety. So this one that we're going to talk about is perfectionism. The verse that we're going to look at in the passage of Scripture, we're going to look at Luke chapter 10, verse 38 through 42. Now as they were traveling along, he entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister called Mary who was seated at the Lord's feet listening to his word, but Martha was distracted with all her preparations. And she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things but only one thing is necessary. For Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. Perfectionism. The psychological definition of perfectionism is a personality trait characterized by a person striving for flawlessness and setting high performance standards accompanied by critical self-evaluations and concerns regarding others' evaluations. Perfectionism is a constant striving and pursuit. It is never satisfied. It is an unsatiable desire for it to all be right. The expectations Are completely unrealistic it turns our life into an endless report card where we're waiting on someone to validate who we are validate what we've done our existence what we'll do next it is constant and ongoing it turns a mistake into a moral failing see we can't when we struggle with perfectionism we can't have just gotten it wrong we are wrong It can't have just been a bad thing. We are bad. And so this this perfectionism that many of us struggle with, it starts often in childhood. For some of us, we have parents or receive parental messages regarding our performance that lead us down this path. Others of us, we have past events and experiences with rejection or criticism that cause us to want to never feel rejection or criticism again, so we take a hyper stance of making sure that we will never do anything to experience it again. Can I tell you about my journey with perfectionism? I struggled with crippling perfectionism. When I was a child and the teacher would assign something to do, maybe bring in three apples or three oranges, I couldn't bring in three. I had to bring in 12 just because I wanted it to be perfect. I wanted everything to be right. And for me, it started because my father, so my, I'm a first-generation northerner. Both my parents are from the South, both sides of my family. And so my father had to work, incredibly hard in his industry to break through and do some of the things that he did. And when he raised me, he wanted to give me the tools to be able to thrive at the highest levels. And I remember one of the sayings that my father would say from the time I was a child is that you cannot give anyone any reason to ever tell you no. Now, the fact is, that's a reality of his world. He was a black man in a white-dominated industry coming from the South. He had no network or connections or anyone that was helping him along. The truth is, people were looking for a reason to be able to say no to him. But in my six-year-old mind, I couldn't process that. I didn't have any context for that. So all I could understand is you can't make any mistakes. You have to be the best you have to work twice as hard and so by the time I grew up when I would get a B on my report card it would send me into a pile of tears and my parents couldn't understand why are you so upset but see what what we do especially with children and with other people and those of us who are high performing see we try to take perfectionism and make it into a positive trait and see, what we'll do is we'll use perfectionism as code to just say, oh, I do things really well. I'm really good at these things. That's what we're saying when we say, I'm a perfectionist. But in reality, there is nothing positive. There is nothing good about perfectionism because perfectionism roots itself in comparison. We compare our appearance, our career, our finances, our mate. We compare constantly and we end up on this endless wheel of striving and pursuing, trying to make it perfect in comparison to what? Perfectionism is a mask and a shield for shame. It's the armor that we put on to try to make ourselves invulnerable to the shame that we feel. See, whenever perfectionism is driving, shame is riding in the shotgun. And you can bet fear is in the backseat. We are perfectionisms, perfectionists in the area that we are most vulnerable to shame. Whatever we are most vulnerable, that place that we we know that if someone was to see in, if someone could peek into this dark place, that's the place where our perfectionism is the strongest, the loudest, and the most on display. It is a mask. To shame is so much more than just having a meticulous nature or just being detail-oriented or just being someone who likes for things to be done well. We use it as a tool to avoid criticism, to avoid blame and ridicule. Ultimately, it is our attempt to control other people's opinions of us. We want to take our actions, our perfectionism, and somehow use it as a magic wand to make other people think that we are as perfect as we're trying to do this one thing. It covers our truth so that we can appear blameless, so that we can avoid reality. It puts us on a path that emphasizes the impetus to do, to perform, and to achieve instead of to be. Our preoccupation with perfectionism, it pulls us apart from purpose. When we look at this text, what we're going to do, we're going to examine the depth of how deep perfectionism can go and how it contributes to our anxiety. It robs us of peace and it numbs us to the experience of joy and being in the present. So if we look at the text, and this is a pretty common text. Most of us are familiar with this story. We're at the end of the 10th chapter of Luke. And this chapter centers around work, around calling, around duty, on the things that God is asking of us to do. It starts with the story of the 70 being sent out. He gives them the charge, instructs them on how they are to interact, how they're supposed to go out and preach the gospel and preach this message. Immediately after that is the story of the Good Samaritan. And then it culminates with our story here of Mary and Martha. So what we have in these three different stories is it's almost like we have an allegorical funnel that's being created on how we are to interact and to complete the charge of doing the work of the Father. He starts broad and tells us how we are to take the gospel out to the masses. Then he narrows in on how we're supposed to love our neighbors and who our neighbors consist of. Then he pulls us into a laser light, bullseye focus on how we are to love and operate with Christ. It becomes a perfect illustration of the outward, the inward, and the upward journey. It calls us into look at on paper, exactly how we are to mirror the message of the cross in these areas of our life. So here we are, Christ is continuing his journey. He's going throughout Jerusalem. He's making his way. He gets to Bethany as into the home of Mary and Martha. Now, as they were traveling along, he entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home let's just stop right there what I love about the book of Luke is that he makes it so interesting when you start analyzing the text and really kind of breaking down and getting into the forensics of this thing one thing about Luke is that it is the single greatest concentration of women of stories of women in the gospels He puts so much detail into this story about two women. This level of detail is unheard of about a story about women. If you look at it from a womanist hermeneutical lens, what he begins to show you is an illustration of how Christ has come for all. It's about his universality that he's come for Jews, Gentiles, and even women. It's a metaphorical illustration of the human condition, that there is so much more that unites us than what separates us. Then he gives us the juxtaposition of these two characters. Martha is serving. Mary is listening. Isn't it funny how we can be so busy trying to serve that we aren't listening? But when we put this in context, I wanna make it clear that Martha wasn't doing a bad thing. And when we struggle with perfectionism, very often we aren't doing bad things. When you look at this society, this was the role of women in their society. The fact is, is that men were thought to be able to be disciples, to listen to a teacher, to actually receive instruction. And women were thought to be the ones serving and in the kitchen preparing the meal. What Mary was doing was actually countercultural. Martha was doing what was typical of the society. For many of us, hospitality and serving is a part of what we do. It's what we think of. For the holiday just passing, I'm sure that just like many of you, I ate to my heart's content. I went to my mother's house and was very glad for her spirit of service. I appreciated it. And so it's not that she was doing a bad thing. This word, in fact, in verse 40, this word, her preparations, that word there is diaconia, and it means ministry. Specifically, it refers to spirit-empowered service guided by faith what she was doing was a good thing as with so many of us it was acceptable it was reasonable she was ministering she was serving but she was so busy in the doing that she wasn't being she wasn't listening she wasn't recognizing that she was actually in the presence of the one who came to serve there was no need for her to serve because the great server was there. This is the same guy who had fed 5000 people. If he was hungry, he will eat. He can do that. But she couldn't let go of the need to be doing. And so when you you find yourself in this place of, "Well, how then do I know what I'm supposed to do? How do I know the difference between perfectionism and just having a spirit of excellence? How do I know if I just want it to be done well and I'm doing it right and I'm struggling, or the difference between that and struggling with perfectionism? I can tell you, one is you have to look at the motivation and intention for your efforts and the resulting peace or lack thereof from what you're doing. See, if our motivation is fear, the opinions of others, avoiding rejection, avoiding criticism, then we are operating in perfectionism and not excellence. When you are operating in a spirit of excellence, your motivation will be seeing the goal accomplished, seeing whatever it is that God has put inside of you to do to come to pass. But if your motivation for doing it is, well, I don't want to hear nobody mouth. I don't want to hear what they have to say. I don't want them to look at me crazy. Any of those things that fear, your imperfectionism. We begin to see the fruit of Martha's intentions as she continues throughout the interaction. So what we come to, when we look at verse 38, we start to deal with the first pattern of perfectionism. Perfectionism distorts. Perfectionism causes us to be able, unable to view properly what we are dealing with. If you look at verse 38, it was Martha who invited Christ to her home. She wanted the Lord to be there, but because of her fixation with being perfect, wanting to make sure that she was the perfect host, wanting to get her Martha Stewart on, the situation that was meant to be a blessing became a burden. As with so many of us, perfectionism distorts our view and what was meant to be our blessing Becomes viewed as a burden. The job that we prayed for. That we fasted for. That now all of a sudden we are in. Is so burdensome. And all we want is to be out of it. If we are so focused. On how we will appear. What people are going to think about us. What they are going to say. What do we wear. What are the right words. What is the exact image. We end up. Where a precious gift just becomes another labor, just becomes another chore. We get robbed of joy, of exuberance. You know the path to abundant life when when Christ says that he came to give us life and life more abundantly? For so many of us, we keep looking for abundant life to show up like a package on a doorstep. In reality, it is the appreciation of the present, of every gift, of every moment, of being able to experience abundance regardless of the situation. Some of us wonder why we're struggling with depression, why we feel numb and detached from our own life. It's because we're not enjoying the blessings that we've had. We've turned them into burdens. And so we come to the second pattern of perfectionism. Perfectionism distracts and it delays. Martha was so busy preparing for the Lord that she didn't actually reap the benefits of the fact that he was there. Can I ask you, are you still preparing for a time that has already come? Are you still working on something that God has already ordained the time to do? See, for so many of us, we fall into paralysis by analysis. We're so busy trying to come up with the perfect plan, with the perfect situation, with exactly how to market it, with exactly how to package it, that we haven't even created the product yet, but we're still working on the marketing plan. You got to move. You can't keep preparing for what God has said it's time to do. If we look at this verse, I love this verse in Ecclesiastes 11, chapter 11, verse three and four. If the clouds are full, they pour out rain upon the earth. And whether a tree falls toward the south or toward the north, wherever the tree falls, there it lies. He who watches the wind will not sow, and he who looks at the clouds will not reap. Can I give you a real-world translation? It is what it is, and if you keep waiting, it won't be nothing. It's time to move. The preparation that perfectionism constantly demands will get you nowhere. If you want to sow, you can't keep watching the clouds. And if you want to reap, you can't keep watching the wind. When we fixate on pursuing perfection apart from Christ, we distract ourselves from what he's called us to do. The business that he called you to, have you acted on it? Or are you still obsessing over the logo? Is the ministry that God called you to undeveloped, unshared, non-existent because you're worried about what people are going to say about you? When we place the opinions of others or even our own self-deprecating thoughts above what God has called us to do, in that moment, we have immediately created an idol. We make idols out of other people's opinions. Martha is so distracted with making it perfect that she can't even see he's already there. Then she got led down to what I would call the third pitfall and pattern of perfectionism. Look at verse 40. Martha was distracted with all her preparations and she came to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. Perfectionism doubts. It causes us to doubt what we know to be true. Jesus is sitting in her house. This is the same guy who has literally healed people. From all types of maladies, he has done miracles. He is in such high demand that crowds follow him everywhere. And he's sitting in her house, and she has the audacity to doubt whether he cares for her. See, he cared so much that he's giving her a personalized sermon in her living room. When we magnify what's going wrong in our life, we start making our problems bigger than God. Her distorted perception and her distracted heart has now caused her to doubt that God cares for her. All of a sudden, that job that you wanted so badly, that promotion that you just knew you had to have, that car that you just wanted more than anything, now all of a sudden it feels like a burden and you feel so worried that you think God is just not even there, that he just doesn't care about your suffering, that he doesn't care about you. The book idea that he gave you is 10 years old now, and everybody else has written three books and published some podcasts and doing everything else. And you're just saying, well, I don't know what the Lord is doing in this season. It's a silent season. God is just not talking to me right It's not a silent season. You're not listening. You're not listening. You're doubting his care. We do this in our marriages We do this when we compare our spouse, our life. We're on Facebook trying to figure out how everyone else is getting these pictures with perfect sunsets and heart hands in these beautiful locations. And then we're trying to go home and recreate these same situations. And when they don't want to take this picture with you, all of a sudden they don't care about your happiness. It doesn't have to be perfect. The pressure that we put on ourselves for the perfect image, the perfect couple, the perfect family. And then all of a sudden, that person doesn't care for us. So here Martha is now. She's frustrated. She feels like the Lord doesn't care. She's distracted with all of her preparations and serving. And just when you think it couldn't get any worse, it does. Verse 40 again, Martha was distracted with all her preparations and she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? See, the fourth pattern of perfectionism is disapproval. The pursuit of perfectionism will leave us critical and frustrated and disapproving of others. See, what we do is we start blaming others for the choices that we decided to make. When we have that feeling that nobody ever does for me what I do for them. Nobody ever treats me how I treat them. Well, nobody asked you to do that. That was a choice. That was a choice. And see, Mary is posted. She is positioned at the feet of Jesus, listening, taking it all in. And Martha is angry because she doesn't feel the same burdensome pressure to be the perfect host that she does. See, perfectionism will cause us to embrace martyrdom and be angry that someone else chooses freedom. Perfectionism will cause us to embrace martyrdom and be angry when someone else chooses freedom. You can't be mad that someone didn't want to fall on the sword with you. The frustration, the pressure, It's like being in a constant pressure cooker and all of a sudden when we see someone else that isn't struggling with our same shame struggle, that isn't on the same spiral and constant grind that we are, we feel a disapproving anger over them and their choices. Mary had chosen the right thing, but Martha's perfectionism couldn't allow her to see it that way. And she disapproved of her sister's choices. The fifth pattern of perfectionism is probably one of the most dangerous and most common. Perfectionism dictates. Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. Telling God what he ought to do is the fastest way to get your little feelings hurt. Because when then when he doesn't do it our way, because we, we've told him that this, this is the best way. This is really the way that it should work. This is what needs to happen. This is, we get in our mind that this is what it's supposed to be. And we believe that with our whole heart. We believe that, and it's just not true. And then when he doesn't start abiding by our lie, we doubt his truth. When we push our agenda around, it wrecks our world. You know, one of the most common words that I hear whenever I sit with people, whenever I talk with people And it is one of the most, I believe, destructive words that we use in our society. And I hear it all the time. And it is the word should. People constantly say, I should have done this already. I should already be at this place. I must do this. I already ought to have this. I already ought to be at this place in my business. I should have already finished college. I should have already been married. You have to question the source of your should. Where is that coming from? What is that based on? Because if it's based on other people, it is shifting sand and it will not stand. The only shoulds that we need to embrace are in the word. Our standard is vertical. It's not horizontal. Our blueprint is Christ and not each other perfectionism roots itself in comparison. We compare constantly to each other and then make a standard out of that. We make rule and law out of what we see someone else doing. It's an act of violence against the self comparison comparing yourself to someone else is like taking all that you are all that you have experienced all that has happened to you the richness of the tapestry of your life and stepping on it it sets us up to where we can only experience conditional joy or contractual peace where we have to have these conditional statements of, if it goes like this, then I'll be happy. If I had this new position, then I can finally be at peace. If I do this, then I can start tithing. If I have this, if I get with this guy, if I have All of these if-then statements we're trying to apply our conditional statements to an unconditional God. Our agenda is not his agenda. If you look at the Lord's prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Our agenda builds our kingdom, not his. We're so busy trying to make bricks To build our own kingdom. And then wondering why he won't provide the straw. If we want to build. And bring his kingdom. It only operates out of his agenda. Out of our willingness. Out of our outstretched open hand. That says whatever you have. Let it come. Let it go. So how then in our society cuz all this sounds real good but how can you be a Mary in a Martha world the first is that you have to accept that you have to be countercultural see the reality is is that We are called to be a royal priesthood, a chosen generation, a peculiar people. You cannot do this thing the way it's meant to be done and think you're going to fit into the box with everybody else. It has to be a countercultural model. Our society emphasizes the appearance of things, the way that they look. And our God, in his kingdom, he wraps the best gifts in rags. He takes the best gifts, the best things, and he wraps them in difficulties, in struggles, in hardships. That's why we have to count it all joy. Because inside of that difficult circumstance, there is an amazing gift. Our society tries to market to us through fear and criticism and shame. But we operate in a kingdom that 2,000 years ago banished the need for any of that. We have to see beyond. That's why we can't walk by sight. If you want to be merry in this world, you have to be willing to live in the upside down kingdom. So how do you cure perfectionism? The cure to perfectionism is priority. Look at how Jesus guides Martha in this. But only one thing is necessary. For Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. See, what he does is he clarifies her priorities. He says only one thing he doesn't say she's wrong he never says that she wasn't supposed to do what she was doing he just says one thing is necessary not one right thing not one wrong thing he says one thing is necessary so how do we identify Our priorities how do we know in this sea of constant things to do of bells and whistles and notifications and phones going off and work emails and constant grind how do we know what's priority I'm gonna give you two ways see the first is we have to focus on the intention versus the attention Martha was focused on what needed to be done, on what the culture dictated, on what people would expect, what they would be looking for, how she would be viewed, how her household would be seen in their society. Mary was focused on why Jesus was there. In order to defeat perfectionism, you have to focus on the intention instead of the attention. See, when we fixate on the attention of what God has called us to, what people will think about, what words we'll use, how it will all look, how people are going to see us, what are they going to tweet about us, what are the messages that they'll get, we set ourselves up from the beginning for a mindset of worry, of fear, and shame. But if we remember the intention, why did he tell you to do it in the first place what did he want for what he's calling you to do when you put the reasoning first it it alleviates the pressure it allows you to truly experience grace that's why paul could be content in the thorn in his flesh because when you can boast about your weaknesses Because they become, although they're imperfections, they become things that might have hindered me. But they're a testimony of what God accomplished his goal in spite of. If I focus on the intention, it takes ourselves off the throne of our heart. And it refocuses that God is, he is the main character of the story. We are just playing a part. Be free of shame and isolation and the pressure that is placed upon trying to manage what everyone else will think of you. Did we accomplish the goal? Was Christ's kingdom brought? That alleviates the pressure of it needing to be perfect. The second is to be present live in the present choose to be instead of to do the thing about anxiety anxiety grounds itself in the future it's some upcoming worry some upcoming fear something that will happen something that you're worrying or dreading or thinking may come depression roots itself in the past about what you agonize over, what you wish you hadn't done, what the regrets are that someone else did, the fears and worries about how someone might find out about what you've been through. Depression lies in your past. Anxiety is in your future, but Christ is in your present. We don't have to carry the shield, the mask of perfectionism When we recognize and focus on where are we now? What's actually happening now? Mary was able to recognize that right now Jesus is teaching in her living room. She's able to see the preciousness of this moment. You know, Martha was so busy so busy preparing, so busy managing the expectations of others and trying to live up to their expectations that she didn't realize the next time she would see Jesus would be when her brother had died. This moment of actually experiencing the joy of Jesus teaching lighthearted and free in her living room, she would never have that again. But she couldn't see it because she was in the future with her perfectionism. There will always be a time to serve. There'll be a time to eat. There'll be a time to prepare. There will be a time that someone is going to have something to say about you. There will be a time that someone may blame you for what happened. But is anybody blaming or talking about you now? What are you doing with now? Scripture says the worries of tomorrow are sufficient for its own time. There is a sacrament to the present moment. It's the gift that we are given consistently. No matter how much you obsess over tomorrow, I guarantee you every time you wake up, it'll be today. We are called for such a time as this, not for some time in the future. You have to be present in today. So as I get ready to close, I just want to share this last piece with you. The Lord said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary. For Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. That word worried in the Greek. It's the Greek word merimnas. And it's the same word in Philippians 4 for be anxious. What Christ was saying to her is that Mary, all these pursuits of perfection are making you anxious. They're causing your anxiety. They're causing you to be pulled apart, to be distracted, to be disheveled, to be confused. Embrace imperfection because we are perfected not in life but in love. That's why we can boast about our weaknesses, boast about our imperfections. Because grace is the gift that is given solely for our imperfections. Grace would not exist if we were perfect. Choose to be present over pursuing perfection. Choose to always recognize the sacrament, the gift of now. When you find your mind racing with questions, with worries, when you find yourself conflicted and overwhelmed with anxiety, choose now to be. Perfectionism is an endless well. It is a fruitless pursuit of doing. It yields only distortion, distraction, doubt, and disapproval to be anxious for nothing, to truly embrace and walk in that command, to receive the peace that passes all understanding, choose to be present over perfection. Amen.